Welcome to the ACO Show. Today, you'll hear Josh interview Dr. Sophia McIntyre, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Hudson River Healthcare. Hudson River Healthcare is part of Allidade's Family Health Accountable Care Organization. Dr. McIntyre was at Allidade headquarters as part of a panel of discussion for Black History Month, and she took some time to speak with Josh about some of the unique challenges and opportunities in providing population health to communities of color and their impressive work implementing team-based approaches to preventative care. We hope you enjoy it. Josh, take it away. Welcome to the ACO Show. This is Josh Israel. I'm a psychiatrist and a medical director here at Allidate. I'm here today without my, my partner, Joe, who is taking a little bit of time at home, and we want to congratulate him and Becca, and uh, we look forward to meeting Ara, our newest podcast listener. Uh, congratulations to you both. So we are here today with uh, Sophia McIntyre, who is the Chief Medical Officer at Hudson River Healthcare. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Glad to be here. Good. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about um, Hudson River Healthcare? Hudson River Healthcare is a network of community health centers based out of Suffolk County and Hudson Valley of New York, mm-hmm. and more recently out of the New York City Division. Mm-hmm. It was started in 1975 by four African-American women who wanted to have access to healthcare in their community. In fact, these four women were mothers. They were traveling to the large uh, university setting and through their experiences, they felt like they wanted to do something different. They wanted to improve the access and how they were treated. And so these women gathered together in a living room, 1975, to say, you know, we should do something different. It's just, this is not working for us, it's not working for our families. They uh, connected with their local legislators and community workers and were able to successfully obtain a grant to open up the first health center called the Amatory, the Peakscale Amatory Care Center. And that vision over you know, 40 years ago grew to over 42 health centers across uh, Hudson Valley, Suffolk County, and now the New York City Division. Okay, and your background, you were trained as a family physician? Yes, so very early on I was going to the doctor with my maternal grandmother, and what my experience during those visits we realized that we had more questions than answers, more confusion than clarity. And I was probably about five or six years old and I realized, gosh, you know, I feel like there's something missing. And at that age, obviously, I didn't know what medicine was supposed to be like, but I knew that we were really confused and scared and frightened and didn't have the answers that we really needed. And uh, that experience, I think, helped to really develop my interest in medicine because I wanted to care for my grandmother. I wanted to ensure that we had answers and that we understood more confidently what the plans were for us. And that really was the impetus for going into medicine. And so my journey has been, you know, I graduated from Spelman College in Atlanta. And after um, graduating, I wasn't quite yet ready for medical school. I came back home to the South Bronx where I grew up. And I actually taught uh, biology and chemistry to high school uh, kids, which was really an interesting experience, Um, particularly growing up in the South Bronx. I think it was a a great challenge and experience for me. But I also think that was part of the journey of 
teaching uh, folks that look like me, uh, African-American, Latinos, that if you work hard, you can really achieve great things. And, you know, teaching biology and chemistry and, and saying to those kids, well, you know, I'm not going to be your teacher anymore because I'm going to medical school. I'm going to be a doctor. This is what I really want to do. And it was pretty exciting. It was sad, but it was great because they had someone that they could relate to that grew up in the neighborhood very similar to theirs and that, that I was able to accomplish that, which meant they were able to accomplish that. And so that was my journey into medical school and went to Drexel uh, Medical School in uh, Philadelphia. And after finishing medical school, I uh, did my residency at Medical College of Georgia. So I then decided to pursue my master's in public health, where I then really understood the importance of caring for patients and understanding how social determinants of health impacted the care of patients. And this opportunity with Hudson River Healthcare came about and it was a leadership uh, opportunity, which I had no idea I would like leadership. I always thought I would be at the bedside mm-hmm. and I uh, thought, well, leadership, how's that going to be? Well, let's try it. And it's just been a wonderful journey uh, with, with Hudson River. Talking a little bit more about Hudson River Healthcare, what are the populations that you primarily serve? We serve a very diverse population. Right now, we have over 225,000 patients. Many of the patients are Medicaid, some are uninsured, and we do also care for commercial uh, patients that have commercial insurance. And so it's a very diverse population. I would say approximately 30 to 40% of our patients are Latino, and uh, you know many other uh, you know ethnicities and races that we care for. Hudson River Healthcare spans very rural communities like Sullivan County, where I actually practice, and we're also in communities that are very urban, like Yonkers. And so, and now with our mer- uh, recent uh, merger, we are serving uh, patients that are in the New York City proper, in the Bronx, and in Brooklyn. And so, there's such great diversity. But I think what we see consistently are that patients uh, need a, a physician or a healthcare provider that really is taking the time to understand their needs and some of the other factors that weigh into their health. Mm-hmm. And do you think they would get less good care from providers who didn't look like them? I do. So in fact, I was reading Harvard Business Review from last year, and it, there was an article that talked about if uh, for, for patients that see, or uh, patients of color, if they are cared by uh, physicians and healthcare providers that look like them, they're more likely to adhere to preventative care recommendations. They're more likely to uh, follow the advice, and there's greater trust. You know, uh, we have a long-standing history of mistrust in communities of color, going back to you know Tuskegee Airmen, and those things don't go away. And when we look at the disparities in uh, healthcare. We see those manifested with the distrust of healthcare, and I reflect in my experience. So, at five years old, I was going with my maternal grandmother to the doctor, and we didn't have a lot of trust because it was clear that they were not interested in or invested in the well-being. It felt like they were looking past us, talking to at us, not to us, and that weighs in on trust. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that one of the great things of uh, FQHC, like Hudson River Healthcare. We're able to. We have patient. We have providers that are really compassionate and are committed to care for patients and and meeting them where they are. Mm-hmm. I was at actually at a pitch meeting just about a week and a half ago, and uh, the person was describing a business model that had been very successful in some parts of the country, but not in others. And the question got asked, you know, why doesn't this work everywhere? And he said, well, in Detroit, for example, 
uh, the communities of color that just don't trust the healthcare system. And this particular model needed the trust and buy-in of the community, so couldn't work there. And, and I was thinking right away, well, did you try hiring people that looked like them to roll it out? Mm-hmm. Is that, do you think that can make a difference? I do think it makes a difference. In fact, when I was reviewing the article, it talked about the this study was designed, they had to make a, uh, a, a network of uh, healthcare providers because it didn't exist. So they could not go to, let's say, uh, a particular organization where there were already uh, African-American physicians or uh, physicians of color so that they could refer patients because it's just the, the percentage of uh, physicians and healthcare providers of color, there are very few of them. And uh, it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the model uh, works and it doesn't mean that patients of color only want to see uh, physicians of color, I think they have a greater trust. Yeah. And I think what's most important is knowing the heart of your provider, that they're really invested in your care. Yeah. Yeah. For my own field of psychiatry, there's been a lot of data. It's, it's very uncomfortable to read that all other things being equal, a white patient, a black patient, the black patient is much more likely to get, to get the older antidepressant, the mm-hmm. tricyclic versus the SSRI. Yes. Um, and they were much more likely to get um, the older antipsychotics, Haldol or Thorazine rather than the newer ones. Um, just the, what do you make of that? Just the, you know, how does the implicit bias lead a doctor to make that decision? Yeah, you know, I just read that uh, two days ago and I was really surprised by that with, uh, in, in the field of psychiatry. And it's the same for cardiovascular procedures, right? So when uh, uh, patients of color go into the emergency department, they also classify that their symptoms are less um, urgent and they have longer waits in the ER which means that the time for recovery, particularly if you're having stroke symptoms, right, that the likelihood of improvement is going to be diminished. So it's it's really hard. And how do you compel patients to be advocates for themselves? What do you think is the thought process going to that provider's clinical decision-making? You know, ostensibly, I actually think it's probably true. A caring person who would be so surprised to learn that that had even come into their decision-making process, and yet the, the data shows that it does. Yeah, we all have bias, and I'm learning more about that as well. I went to a conference, the AFP, and went to the workshops, and it's hard to understand how those, they're so ingrained that many don't really fully appreciate the bias. And I think that when they're shown how their treatment is different, I think it's surprising for them. And so I think one of the opportunities is to really assess if this was my mother, if this was my brother, would I be giving them that same recommendation? Mm-hmm. Can I see the person as a human being and not by color? And that's hard because that, you know, medicine is half, it's very fast paced, right? So it's not a lot of thinking and debating. It's really moving and acting. And how do you make that transition? It's really unclear for me at this time, but I think it's, it's an opportunity to train ourselves and I also think it's an opportunity for institutions to begin to acknowledge implicit bias and really institutional racism, which is a big factor of what we see manifested. The, the one bright spot in the, in the data about uh, the way implicit bias comes through in clinical decision-making, uh, for opiate treatment, for pain medications, the same data was there, that an mm-hmm. African-American presenting with you know a Likert scale higher for pain was more likely to get NSAIDs than opiates. Mm-hmm. And it looked for a while like we were under-treating African-American pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we see, actually, turns out that the racism, or well, probably racism, led to a good situation because African-Americans are the least likely to get addicted to opiates. Because, mm-hmm. in fact, 
we weren't under treating their pain we were over treating everybody else's so yes. I, i'm sort of gratified that at least there's one good thing came out of this that the opiate crisis hasn't hit the african-american community quite as hard even if it's for the wrong reasons yeah yeah you know i think the response to the opiate crisis has been interesting because many will say it's a crisis but what happened with um, perhaps illegal substances and uh, how many uh, people of color were being affected by let's say you know crack cocaine and others and how the response has been let's help to find treatment for patients with opioid addiction and where was the treatment for patients that were using illegal substances it's you know still substance use disorders and needing treatment but the response has been different so mm-hmm. i think you're right that you know opioid treatment has affected less uh, people of color but then there's a, a feeling well where was our help where was our rally where were the policy changes to ensure that folks who were still struggling with substance use were not being addressed in a different way that's interesting sort of like why is it a national crisis now yeah 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 yeah, yeah that's a, a great um sort of a, a nice example of things that i I try to be aware of it, but you, you can't notice what you don't notice, and it's, yeah. it's hard to see things sometimes. Which, you know, you mentioned institutional racism. You know, how, how do you think that plays out in, in the medical institutions? You know, I think that um, it shows up in a lot of different ways. So, institutional racism is manifested. It's hard for me to even articulate, like, how is it manifested? I think uh, I see it in a lot of different ways. So for me, as an African-American woman, you know, I grew up in the South Bronx. I grew up in public housing. Uh, ironically, I didn't quite appreciate race- racism, uh, I think, to the level until probably uh, in college. In fact, uh, I think that is when I became more aware of it. And so how it's manifested for me is when I enter a room, there's an assumption that, uh, certainly in my training, that I must be the nurse, I must be the person that's cleaning, I must be, um, you know, lay staff, not the professional. Um, I think that with the name of Sophia McIntyre, when uh, folks who don't Google me (laughs) or see a picture, they have very different impressions. Uh, and I think there is a uh, expectation that there is less to be expected of uh, folks of color than others. There's a uh, underappreciation of the value that we may bring. So I think that's how it's manifested, probably more on a professional level. I think on the late level is uh, that many times we're not given opportunities to um, to compete. I think that is. Uh, something that uh, I think institutional racism is can be manifested I'm struggling to find like the words because it's something that you just experience it's hard to bring voice to it and you know I think my experience is very different from many others but uh, I I think it's just feeling invisible at times and then yet feeling like the spotlights on you Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time and there was a, another great article in the Harvard Business Review which talked about women in leadership mm-hmm. and how their experiences have been you know, difficult. And you'll find that many women uh, in leadership and, and people of color will, you know, in the article it talked about, you know, having, being agile, you know, being resilient, um, being able to uh, just overcome because that's just part of the normal um, fabric of our experience is that things are not going to be as easy and so you know you have to put your grid in and that's just kind of how it uh, requires 
ironically, I find that it's been an advantage for me to sort of work hard. I, I said to my son, who's 12 years old, who he's in the honors program and he's doing well, but you know, he's, he's starting to struggle a little bit. And I said, you gotta just work hard. I said, you know, mommy's not that smart. Mommy had to really work hard. And, you know, I think if I said that to someone, well, mommy's not smart. Well, mommy has a medical degree. She has an MPH and an MBA. And I said, it's not really about being smart. It's just really about working hard. And you, you got to want to work harder than anyone else. And that's how you can get these things. It's not that you have to be a brilliant science scientist. And, and it was really me just demonstrating that you have to work hard. And I think for many people of color, that is their experience. They must work hard. Mm-hmm. Things are, they don't have the opportunities that many will have. And, you know, I think it's worked to my advantage because I just knew that I have to kind of put my head down, work really hard. But even when you work hard, sometimes you still don't get the, those same opportunities. Mm-hmm. So that can be disconcerting. But I think that resilience is part of one of those attributes that are the core fiber of many. Now, Allidate is, I think you know, is a, is a company that helps groups of providers come together and form accountable care organizations. Yes. Um, to me, value-based care seems like um, sort of a equally good for all comers, sort of like a race-neutral endeavor. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if we might be missing anything. When you think about value-based care outcome that really depends on uh, good health outcomes, what, what comes to mind for you as issues we may be missing? I think value-based outcomes, I think it's a good concept because it gets away of the treadmill work of fee-for-service and seeing more in order to get more. I think that value has the opportunity to look at individuals and see, well, what do they really need? Let's get around the excess and how we get reimbursed. Let's just provide good care. So I think it has a tremendous opportunity. I think that it will still continue to have some you know, challenges as you care for different communities because let's, ex- let's give an example of A1C control. So in order to have good A1C control, it requires a number of things, diet and exercise, of course, being the most important. And culturally and environmentally, uh, folks of color may not be able to have access to good food because there's food de- uh, deserts. There's, uh, you know, not safe places for them to, uh, you know, engage in exercise. The crime is so high that they're afraid. And so as we think about the lifestyle changes that are necessary to improve the care of patients, it's still going to be challenges because what I think may better answer the question of institutional racism is how do those systems get developed where you don't have safety in those communities, which makes some of the lifestyle challenging. And you know, you're still going to have uh, some that are making more money than others. And so the access to better care by, by virtue of you know, cultural, uh, environmental factors will still play in, uh, come into play. I think one of the unique things about an FQHC is we have wraparound services that help to try to mitigate that. And so you have folks from the community helping to advocate, helping to educate, that allows for that empowered uh, model of patients to be more engaged in their care. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an opportunity for that. Yeah, and I know your organization has done some really interesting work on hypertension, um, which we're focusing on more and more as it becomes more and more clear on all the health outcomes that gets in the way of. And you guys were way ahead of the curve on that. I'd love to hear about how you tackled that. So hypertension is one of the bright spots I find as I look at the quality data on month to month and you know quarter by quarter. Uh, you know Hudson River Healthcare has, you know, had a average uh, hypertension rate about seventy one percent. 
So national average is about 53% of control. So 53% of you know U.S. Uh, patients are controlled, and we were able to consistently have 71%. So what's the magic? Uh, I think the magic is we're engaging patients. We are educating them on factors that can impact their hypertension. And I think the key to management is, you know, quick return to the office and understanding where there are going to be challenges. We developed a standardized protocol. We looked at the uh, uh, Kaiser and their work over 10 years. They were able to improve their hypertension control from, I think, 43% to over 80%. And there were some basic things that they did. One, they were able to identify some of the challenges. They connected with patients between visits to ensure that uh, the things that often happen where, you know, simple things such as, so I see Mrs. Jones, she has hypertension. I'm going to change her Norvast from 5 to 10 milligrams. I tell her in the office, your your blood pressure is not controlled. We're going to make that change. So Mrs. Jones forgets that I made the change or couldn't get the uh, prescription from the pharmacy. And so understanding those things are going to happen and then planning for that. So having a protocol such that the patient gets a call in a week or two weeks to say, oh, Mrs. Jones, you saw Dr. McIntyre. She increased your Norvast from five milligrams to 10 milligrams. Did you pick it up at the pharmacy? Are you having questions? And making those uh, interventions before the patient comes back in, let's say four weeks, they didn't get their blood pressure medicine. You're like, oh, you feel like you're on a cycle for three months of, you know, you feel like you have these fits of starts. You have a plan. You understand the plan. Yep, got the plan. And then when you come back, like no one understood the plan. And so I think intervening uh, between appointments was one of the keys for Kaiser, and we implemented that. The other thing that we implemented was the self-measured blood pressure uh, monitoring program. So allowing patients to have their blood pressure uh, machines at home, it helps to engage them into their uh, care. Then it's not them just coming in and sort of being a passive participant in their health. They're checking their blood pressure. They're uh, now more aware of how to accurately measure their blood pressure. They're making sure that the, the nurses and the medical assistants, when they're taking their blood pressure, they're doing it accurately. We have posters in the room that has how the, the patients are supposed to be uh, have the blood pressure. And so they said, you know, I wasn't sitting in the chair. My feet weren't planted on the ground. and They didn't take my blood pressure. And so they're having a correction of the staff, which is wonderful. So it's accountability. I think all of those things have helped to improve our, our rates of hypertension. And so it sounds like there's a lot of people involved in this besides just the primary care provider. Absolutely. How did it come about that you decided to use team-based care in that way? I think we've always been, uh, you know, proponents of team-based care. We know that physicians can't do it alone. And we participated in a number of collaboratives very early on in 2013. We were part of a ASCO project, which is with the Million Hearts and CDC. And they really uh, brought together many partners to uh, collaborate and really enforce the uh, team-based care. And we learned a lot during that endeavor, and that was uh, really early on. Uh, I think I, I joined Hudson River in 2008, and I think maybe that was 2010 or 11 that we were part of that project. And we just knew that everyone had an integral role in the care of the patient, and if we held each other accountable, that we would get the outcomes that we wanted. Mm-hmm. And we see that manifested not only in hypertension, but more importantly in our ACO work with our adult wellness visits as well. One of our challenges in working with FQHCs around the shared savings model is that if you're an independent provider and there's a shared savings check at the end of the year, 
that's yours. You know, you get to put that into your bank account or back into your practice, but clearly the work you have done comes back to you. FQHC providers are typically salaried, and so we have not had a hard time engaging them in the in doing the right thing by the patient, but getting really connected to things that lead to shared savings has been a little trickier because it goes back to the organization, not to the provider. Um, you know, if you think about what works as far as behavioral conditioning, that's, mm-hmm. you know, giving the reward to, uh, you know, a Somebody else isn't likely to incentivize your behavior much. So how did you get providers to care? You know, what was the accountability that that you put in place? You know, that's a great question. I've actually just recently learned about behavioral economics and some of the things that, uh, you know, folks are using to incentivize and, and change behavior. You know, it's we haven't used financial incentives as a way to improve and to really uh, be successful in our adult wellness business, let's say. And I think that... It's the accountability of every team member in the competition. I think innately, we have some very competitive uh, teams. We uh, are transparent with our data. We uh, structure where uh, very organized. When I first got involved in the ACO, it just seemed like there was so much going on and there were so many ideas of how to do it. And I thought, let's just start simple. Let's just let's not make it complicated. Let's see who are the core people that are part of the team and how can they each take a role and help and improve. And so we started off really, really slow. I remember we had weekly calls and I, I must admit they were really painful because we weren't successful. And I was convinced that we didn't need to change our strategy every moment, that we had to just decide on a strategy and to be consistent with it and to trust that with time we would see the results. And so I share this story to the teams now, and they laugh because we're so successful. And many of them were not even around when we were doing this work early on. So they can't believe that, like, I can't believe we weren't successful. But it's really simple. So we took frontline staff members and really made them in charge of this work. So we identified point uh, persons or point people at each of the health centers. And we held them accountable and responsible. And we didn't say you were gonna get more money for this. We were just clear that they were going to be the key to improve the care of the patients. And so we indicated that they were going to be responsible for managing the list. And so the list included patients that were assigned to the practice that uh, were all Medicare patients, and they were responsible for appointing them to the providers. And we set up a system where when uh, the patients came in that all of the questions and assessments were done by the medical assistants and rooming. And so the provider, their only job was to review the information and then make some decisions based on the information that they had. But all the work and coordination happened outside of the provider. And so it's pressing the easy button. (laughs) So, you know, there's a patient that's appointed, everyone is coordinating on the behalf of of the patient and the provider, and then it happens. And what we realized is we wanted to create some rigor and consistency. So we released the reports every Wednesday morning. And so it's so funny because now everyone's like, where's the report? If, if for some reason the system is down and you know we can't quite get the report, everyone's like, hey, the report's not out. The report goes out about seven or eight o'clock in the morning and it's the list of patients and they are all in tune to it. And it's a wonderful thing. And this is all led by frontline staff members and they know they have the impact and it's, it's wonderful. That is very impressive. We, we, I should use these interviews more to steal people's company secrets. That <laughs> don't, don't be surprised if you happen to see something that looks very much like that at yeah. other allied clinics. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to share that because 
we believe oftentimes that the physician is the one that's going to make the change. And you know, I'm a physician, so I, I have no uh, qualms of uh, understanding the value that they bring in. And I know that our core, what is most important for us is the engagement of the patient. Mm-hmm. We just want to practice medicine. And all the business aspects, if someone else can do that for us, then we're happier for it. <laughs> all right, anything else you think we should just cover with a couple more minutes? No, I, I, I think I like to just share the value that, you know, Alidatas bring to the practice. I think when we were on this journey early in 2014, that uh, there was definitely a commitment to bring together our three partners. And so, you know, Hudson River Healthcare, Open Door, Institute for Family Health, or three sister FQHCs that came together to uh, really try to uh, endeavor into this new model of this uh, shared savings plan. And there was a lot of uh, challenges, but I think there was an investment of validate to figure out how do we make it work. We were trying to figure it out, and we really felt that y- you all were doing that with us. So I think that partnership has been good, and we're seeing success um, now. And it, it feels good and to hear others remark how successful, and it just makes me smile because I'm like, I remember those calls. We weren't that successful, but time and patience and persistence shows that you know we can do it. Well, Dr. McIntyre, thank you so much for taking the time to speak today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much.